Johnson. For uh, toys, we've got dinosaur books, very large number of dinosaur books, and that's not all of them. And all of those dinosaur books have two things in common. They talk about dinosaurs, and they teach evolution in millions of years. And parents pick up those books, and most parents, most Christian parents, don't know what to do with the evolution in millions of years parts, so they just read the books to the kids, and the kids are learning about Stegosaurus and Brachiosaurus and T-Rex, and in the process, they're being brainwashed with evolution in millions of years. But it's not just the children, it's the adults also. National Geographic, 1998, Dinosaurs Take Wing, The Origin of Birds. Most evolutionists believe that dinosaurs evolved into birds. That's how we got birds. In 1999, feathers for T-Rex. We're going to look at that article in a moment. But um, often uh, when we're out speaking or, or we're engaged in personal conversation with someone and they find out we're creationists, uh, one of the most common questions is, okay, how do you fit dinosaurs into the Bible? And when they ask that question, they're really thinking, how do you fit the fact that dinosaurs lived millions of years ago and they were these vicious meat-eating creatures that ripped other creatures apart? How do you fit that into the Bible? And the answer is really easy. You don't. You don't fit the evolutionary interpretation of the fossil evidence of dinosaurs into the Bible. Rather, what we need to do is we need to start our thinking with the Bible and then use that truth to interpret the fossil evidence of dinosaurs. And that's what we're going to do, but to start, I want to show you what the evolutionists believe about dinosaurs. This is a chart from Encyclopedia Britannica, that fine Christian publication. And uh, they show you that the dinosaurs came into existence about, uh, about 245 million years ago. The first ones were pretty small, then they evolved into the bigger ones, and then they all went extinct about 65 million years ago. Uh, in another chart in that encyclopedia, they show you that the dinosaurs and the crocodiles are related to a common ancestor called the archosaur, and then the dinosaurs evolved into birds. And in this particular uh, view, uh, Archaeoraptor, uh, excuse me, Archaeopteryx was the transitional form from, rep, from dinosaur to bird, although there are evolutionists who would say that uh, Archaeopteryx was 100% bird. I've, uh, I've noticed that evolutionists spend most of their time talking about what dinosaurs evolved into rather than where they came from. Uh, an interesting article in Science a few years ago. The demise of T-Rex and most other dinosaurs some 65 million years ago may grab all the headlines, but paleontologists are equally concerned with puzzling out how these mighty beasts got their start. Who were their ancestors? They don't really know. But they want us to believe that dinosaurs uh, evolved from some other creature and evolved into birds. And a few years ago, I was speaking at the Museum of the Rock, uh, I was speaking at, uh, in Bozeman, Montana, and during a Sunday afternoon uh, break, my host took, uh, took me over to the Museum of the Rockies at Montana State University. It is arguably uh, the greatest collection of dinosaur fossils uh, anywhere in the United States and maybe even in the world. Really, really impressive. And so I, I went through the museum and I saw all these uh, dinosaur fossils uh, and uh, I saw all the evolutionary labels and signs under those fossils. And then I, I just before I went out into the lobby, uh, I came to a TV screen. And it had a, it had a video showing birds uh, preening themselves, uh, taking off, playing around in the water, landing. And above the, the TV screen was a sign, which you, uh, you can't see, but I'm going to show you what it said. It said, birds are living dinosaurs. No, folks, birds are not living dinosaurs. Birds are birds. That's playing language games with people. In a... Uh, an article in Scientific American a number of years ago, Richard Lewontin, one of the leading evolutionists in America, had a chart showing uh, a comparison of uh, dinosaurs with birds, and he said this, evolution of birds from reptiles can be considered a process of adaptation by which birds solve the problem of flight. Now, one of the things that we hope that you will learn uh, from this weekend 
is that when you read a statement about evolution, not about a creature, but about evolution, you should read the statement, and then you should go back and read it again really slowly, because uh, often that itself will show you that there's a problem. So let's do that. Evolution of birds from reptiles can be considered a process of adaptation by which birds solved the problem of flight. Well, if they were already birds, they already knew how to fly. It should have said by which reptiles solved the problem of flight. But, of course, if it was that easy, then Orville and Wilbur Wright wouldn't have had to do all those experiments to figure out how to fly. But uh, he shows us uh, comparisons, and he wants us to try to think that they're similar, but they're really quite different. Uh, the bones are different. Reptiles have uh, basically solid bones like mammals, like people with marrow in them. Birds, most bird bones are hollow with that crisscrossing structure that engineers have copied to make bridges. Uh, their forelimbs are similar, but they're noticeably different. Their sternums uh, obviously are similar, but significantly different. And their skin covering is different. Reptiles have scales. Birds have feathers. And uh, they, they're quite obviously different at the macro level. Um, we will admit that when you look down at the microscopic level under a microscope, they're, they're very, very similar. But if you pay attention, you can see the difference. So uh, this is reptile scales under the microscope. And uh, they're like overlapping uh, plates of uh, skin. They're, they're folds of skin. Uh, no animal was hurt, by the way. To make this picture, this is the shed skin of a snake. Well, Dr. Minton on our staff, who is a professor of human anatomy for 34 years at Washington Medical School, he took that picture. He uh, asked a, a student to bring in a feather for him so he could look at it under the microscope. And you'll see that they are very similar under the microscope, but just take a good look at that, that reptile scale, and that's bird feathers. Just, just about exactly the same. And if we crank up the power, it's even more different because the feather is made up of a system of barbs and barbules and that little structure right there is actually on a hinge and that swings over onto that other part. And so when you pull down a feather, it pulls it apart. When you go up the feather, it zips everything together. An amazingly complex structure. There's no way scales just evolved into feathers by a reptile running along real fast and uh, the scales getting frayed on the edges. There's another difference. Reptiles, uh, like mammals, have a two-way lung system. So the air goes into the lungs, and it goes back out the same way. But the bird has an absolutely unique lung system. No other creature has this lung system. The air goes into the lungs, and then it goes out into the body cavity, into some sacs, into some hollow bones, and then it goes back out the body. And that allows for a continuous flow of air through the bird's lungs as it's flying. How do you change a two-way system into a one-way system and still have the creature survive? You can only miss a few breaths and then you're dead. The uh, evolutionists have a couple of theories for the origin of flight. One is the ground-to-air theory. This, the idea here is that a, a reptile was running along trying to catch some food and his arms were really flabby, they were flapping in the wind, and uh, his scales got frayed off on the edges, and pretty soon he took off. But of course, do you realize how long he would have to run? I mean, he'd starve to death before he ever got off the ground. So that idea was only entertained for a very brief time. The popular view today is the air-to-ground theory. The idea here is that there was a reptile up in the tree and he wanted to get over to another tree on another branch. And he thought to himself, you know, there's got to be a lot faster way to do this than to crawl all the way down this tree, over the ground, up the other tree. And so he jumped. Of course, the first experiment would have been a disaster. <laughs> because if he hadn't figured out gravity, wind resistance, the motion of the branch he was on compared to the motion of the branch he was trying to get to, uh, he would have perished. If he survived, he would have thought, that's really stupid. I'm not doing that again. And if he didn't survive, his son would have said, dad was really dumb. I'm not doing that. 
There is one other uh, theory that has been pro proposed for the origin of feathers. It's called the keep warm theory. Uh, and so the idea here is that reptiles evolve feathers to keep warm. So perhaps the first uh, feathered dinosaur was a triceracete. <laughs> of course, this isn't going to work unless they evolve feathers on every part of the body. And if they just evolve feathers on the right arm, that's not going to allow them to survive in cold weather. Uh, Alan Fiducia is a world expert on birds. He's an evolutionist at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. This is what he thinks of the keep warm theory. Indeed, the simplest and most profound objection to all thermoregulatory or keep warm theories is why feathers. Feathers are extremely complex, both structurally and embryologically, that is, as they develop in, in the egg. But the evolutionists want us to believe that dinosaurs evolved into birds. November 1999, National Geographic had an article, Feathers for T-Rex, and in big bold letters they said, New bird-like fossils are missing links in dinosaur evolution. Notice the verb. Not might be, not could be, are. And you can see that this, uh, this baby T-Rex has got down feathers. But folks, that's not a photograph. That's a painting by an evolutionary artist. You open up the article and uh, have a picture of Archaeoraptor lioningensis. Uh, and uh, they said, we can now say that birds are theropods just as confidently as we say that humans are mammals. Well, what's a theropod? They don't show you in the article, so I'm going to show you. That's a theropod. It's the dinosaurs with the big back legs and the short front legs, which scientists don't know yet what they did with them because they're not long enough to reach their mouth. Uh, but right away, once you see that, you see a problem. Of course, the National Geographic didn't show us that picture, so you can't see that. But that theropod has short arms, but that creature that flies has big, long arms. But they said, we're just as confident that birds are theropods as that humans are mammals. Well, are humans mammals? Yes. We have hair. We give birth to live young. We feed our young milk. We're more than mammals, but we're mammals. We're, we're, not, we're not reptiles, we're not fish, we're not amphibian. They said, we're just as confident. Well, that was November of 1999. Just a few months later, in March of 2000, National Geographic published a letter to the editor by a Chinese paleontologist. And in so many words, he said, I hate to inform you of this, but the fossil in which you based that article was a fraud. It was the parts of a reptile fossil and the parts of a bird fossil very cleverly glued together by Chinese farmers. The National Geographic had egg on their face. And they commissioned an independent investigator to find out how this happened and uh, what went wrong with the fossil that they spent $80,000 for at a fossil show in uh, Utah. And the article of that researcher was published in the back of the magazine in October of 2000. And it's a very interesting read, except it doesn't have any color pictures. And I wonder how many people who saw this article saw that article, or the little teeny tiny letter to the editor. Because most people don't read National Geographic, they look at the pictures because they know pictures are worth a thousand words and they're busy. Well, that was 2000. In 2003, Discover Magazine, uh, which is an evolutionist magazine, popular science magazine, it had an interview with Alan Fiducia, the one who commented on the uh, keep warm theory. And they said this, what about all the other evidence for feathered dinosaurs? Dr. Fiducia, when we see actual feathers preserved on specimens, we need to carefully determine if we're looking at secondarily flightless birds that have retained feathers and only superficially resemble dinosaurs or if the specimens are in fact related to dinosaurs. That's a difficult issue to deal with right now, given the existence of fake fossils. Ah, that's interesting. So far, only one feathered dinosaur, Archaeoraptor, the one in National Geographic, has been publicly acknowledged as a forgery. You think there are others? Dr. Fiducia. Archaeoraptor is just the tip of the iceberg. 
There are scores of fake fossils out there, and they have cast a dark shadow over the whole field. When you go to these fossil shows, it's difficult to tell which ones are faked and which ones are not. I have heard that there is a fake fossil factory in northeastern China in Liaoning province near the deposits where many of these recent alleged feathered dinosaurs were found. Now please note, this is not a taxi driver with an 8th grade education speaking. This is a world expert on birds at one of our most prestigious universities and he says when you go to the fossil shows it's difficult to tell which one is real and which one is a fake. In fact another paleontologist at the University of New Orleans said this almost every one of the Chinese bird fossils that I've seen on the commercial market has some reconstruction to make it look prettier. Adhesives and fake rock have become very easy for Chinese peasants to make and very difficult to spot. You can't spot it without a microscope or ultraviolet or x-rays. Another paleontologist at the University of Kansas, at the moment I don't trust any of these specimens until I see the x-rays. The whole commercial art, uh, market for fossils has gotten riddled with fakery. Well, in the Discover article, Fiducia, Dr. Fiducia went on to say this, journals like Nature, the, one of the leading technical journals in the world, don't require specimens to be authenticated and the specimens immediately end up back in China so nobody can examine them. They may be miraculous discoveries, they may be missing links as they are claimed, but there is no way to authenticate any of this stuff. But the feathered dinosaurs continue to come out of China. Uh, to change a reptile into a bird, you've got to do more than uh, make feathers from scales. You have to change the breathing system, the skeletal system, the digestive and nervous system, construct bills and beaks, master the art of nest building. Now, we do, uh, we do conclude that dinosaurs laid eggs in nests because we have found uh, clutches of eggs in what appear to be nests in the fossil record. But they didn't make nests in trees. That's an additional skill. They have to learn to fly and navigate, and there are some birds that fly from Alaska to Hawaii nonstop. They eat enough so that they can lose uh, two-thirds of their body weight in the flight. Nobody knows exactly how they get there. There's another bird that flies all the way from Green Greenland nonstop to, South, uh, to Antarctica. But they think they might migrate by the magnetic field of the earth or the sun, but they're not absolutely sure. You have to develop sound-producing organs and learn songs, and every bird species has a different song. And then you've got to shrink the dinosaur to make the first bird, and then shrink the first bird to make all the other birds. So I submit that dinosaurs or any other reptile evolving into a bird is simply impossible and certainly not supported by the fossil evidence, as seen in this book by, an evolution, by evolutionists on uh, the history of dinosaurs. And you can see uh, that they say that uh, crocodiles and birds and saurischian dinosaurs and, and ornithischian dinosaurs are all descended from a common ancestor. Now, what, what are these kinds of dinosaurs? Where saurischian dinosaurs are dinosaurs that have lizard-type hips, and ornithischian dinosaurs are dinosaurs that have bird-type hips. Now, logic would tell you that birds evolved from the dinosaurs that had bird-type hips. But forget about logic, because the evolutionists say the birds actually descended from the ones that have lizard-type hips. But there are two colors of lines here. What does that mean? Well, it's black and gray in, in my book. And what they tell us is that um, the yellow lines are where we have solid scientific evidence. The gray is imagination. So let's get rid of that so we can see the fossil evidence. And that looks like crocodiles have always been crocodiles, birds have always been birds, and different kinds of dinosaurs have always been different kinds of dinosaurs, just like Genesis says, that God created after their kind. Well, what happened to the dinosaurs? You can see that we do have crocodiles and we do have birds, but the dinosaurs, they all disappeared, supposedly, at 65 million years. What happened? Well, the evolutionists come up with uh, dozens of theories. They ate too much, they didn't eat enough, gas, uh, all kinds of explanations. But the popular one is uh, that a huge asteroid slammed into the earth and wiped out all the dinosaurs. But uh, Peter Makovitsky is the curator of dinosaurs at the Chicago Field Museum. He says this, 
The truth is, scientists don't really know what happened to the dinosaurs. Each hypothesis on its own doesn't fit the pattern very well. Was extinction gradual or sudden? The lack of data doesn't allow us to answer the question. So let's use the Bible to explain dinosaurs. And the first question we have to ask is, when did the dinosaurs come into existence? When did God create them? Because they didn't pop into existence by chance. And the Bible's very clear. They were made on day six. And you say, now wait a minute. I've read Genesis 1. It doesn't say anything about dinosaurs. Well, you're right. The word dinosaur is not there. But neither does it say anything about dogs or hippos or elephants. But I know they were made on day six because they're land animals. And God said he made the land animals on day six. So he expects us to use our brains when we read the Bible. So dinosaurs are made on day six because they're land animals. But I have photographic evidence anyway. There's um, <laughs> Adam and Eve. I mean, that picture is just as good as any picture in any evolutionist museum. How do we know what color they were? Oh, the answer's easy. We don't. We hardly ever find fossilized skin. You can't determine the color of the skin by studying the bones. Sometimes we find fossilized skin, and scientists are developing techniques to uh, identify the pigment cells and, and figure out the color, but uh, we don't know. They could have all been dull green like crocodiles and alligators, or they could have been uh, some really bizarre colors. Well, then we have a question. What did T-Rex eat on the day he was created? He had six, up to six-inch-long teeth with serrated edges, and we say, well... He ate anything he jolly well pleases. That's how the evolutionists want us to picture him from the start. But we want to ask biblically, what did he eat on day six? Would he have been a plant eater, a meat eater, a scavenger eating dead creatures, or a plant and a meat eater? Well, if we're thinking biblically, he was a plant eater on day six. Because as, as uh, Steve referred to, in Genesis 1, it says that man was created to be a vegetarian and every beast of the earth was also originally vegetarian. And those sharp teeth would be very useful for eating uh, plant material. I mean, it's even difficult to cut a tomato with a dull knife, but there's lots of, lots of plant material that sharp teeth would be very useful for. So he could have used those to eat lots of plant material. And did you know that uh, alligators and crocodiles will eat plant material? In fact, recently, research in 2013 said that nearly three-fourths of crocodilian species eat fruit frequently and intentionally. And you can go on YouTube and watch uh, on the, up in the left there an uh, alligator eating a watermelon. Yeah, but, but sharp teeth are proof that the creature ate meat. No. Sharp teeth are just proof that the creature had sharp teeth. Because uh, here are the jaws of six varieties of bats. Only one of those jaws goes with a bat that eats small mammals. Which one is it? Well, if we never saw these creatures alive, we'd probably think they all ate meat. But it's only B. I mean, one of those jaws goes with a, with a bat that eats only insects. One eats only blood. And uh, here's some really sharp teeth. Now, those jaws are, are almost identical. But the top one is a fruit bat that eats only fruit. The bottom one is a wolf that eats meat. And squirrels have very sharp teeth and sharp claws, but they're largely vegetarian. They need those sharp claws to bite those walnuts and other and, and teeth to bite those uh, hard nuts. Uh, there's a bear exhibit in Sydney, Australia that said, Although all bears have teeth designed for eating meat, their diet consists mainly of plants. Now, wait a minute. Think about this. If their diet consists mainly of plants, why don't we conclude that they have teeth designed to eat plants? I mean, that's what they eat. And there is one bear, at least he's popularly called a bear, that is strictly vegetarian, and he has sharp teeth and sharp claws. It's a panda bear. And he needs those sharp teeth and claws to eat that tough bamboo. And then did you hear about the lioness that refused to eat meat? Little Tyke was uh, born in 1946, I believe. She lived nine years. She was almost killed as a little tiny cub in a zoo by her mother and, an, and a, 
a human being rescued the, the little creature, took it to their farm in Washington, nursed it back to health, and uh, lived a normal life. It, it refused to eat meat. They would, they would put meat in the bowl of milk. It would drink the milk, leave the meat. They would wrap the food, the milk, in, uh, the, uh, uh, a museum said, just put a little bit of blood in the milk. They got it to one drop of blood in the pan of milk, and the cat could tell it was there and wouldn't drink the milk. Lived a normal life. Its favorite friend at the farm was, was Becky the lamb. Kind of reminds me of what Isaiah says, that one day the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the lion will eat grass like an ox. So originally, the dinosaurs and all the other creatures were vegetarian. Yeah, but if dinosaurs existed with man, why don't we find dinosaur, the word dinosaur in the Bible? Well, that's really easy. Uh, the reason it's not in the King James Bible is because the King James was translated in 1611. But the word dinosaur was not invented until 1841 by Sir Richard Owen, a very famous British scientist. So that's 230 years after the Bible was translated. Well, why isn't it in our modern translations? Well, all our modern translations were done after 1859 when Charles Darwin published his theory and after the early 19th century when virtually the whole church had accepted the millions of years. And so most Bible scholars don't see any evidence in the Bible for dinosaurs. But there's some intriguing evidence. For one, there's a Hebrew word, tanin, which it appears a number of times in the Old Testament. In the King James, it's usually translated as dragon. And then there's a passage in Job chapter 40, which doesn't use the word, but describes another creature by the name of behemoth. Now, in Job 38 and 39, God had already been asking Job a whole lot of questions about creation. And he asked him about the horse, lion, eagle, deer, mountain goat, donkey, ox, ostrich, and locust. And clearly, these were creatures that Job knew from experience. So when God says, look at the behemoth, he's telling him to look at another creature that he saw in his world. Which I made along with you, and which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins, what power in the muscles of his belly. So, whatever creature he's describing is a vegetarian, has really strong stomach muscles. And then he says, uh, he has bones, his bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs are like rods of iron, he ranks first among the works of God. So he's got really strong bones. And he evidently is the greatest land animal that God made. In chapter 41, God talks about Leviathan, who was evidently the, the greatest sea creature God made. Well, what creature was this? Well, I left out one verse. Verse 17 says, his tail sways like a cedar. Now, if you look at the marginal notes of most modern study Bibles, you'll see something like what is in the NIV study Bible, possibly the hippopotamus or elephant. But you need to remember something. You need to remember that it is the biblical text that is inspired and inerrant, not the marginal notes. Those are human opinion. Well, whoever wrote that note either wasn't paying attention to verse 17 or hasn't been to the zoo lately. <laughs> because uh, this is the cedar of Lebanon, one of the biggest trees in the Middle East. And when that tree moves, it doesn't go like that. It's going to move really slowly in a heavy wind. Now, kids, you're going to have to answer this question because your parents won't know the answer to this. But uh, there's a tail that would move like a cedar tree. Now, have you ever seen a, an elephant with a tail like that? No. How about a hippo? No, no. But there are creatures that had tails like that. They're called sauropods, the long-necked dinosaurs. And just in case you haven't been to the zoo lately, there is an elephant, and uh, when it moves, it goes like that. And uh, there's a hippo, and uh, when his tail moves, it goes like that. And when you see it going like that, you would be wise to be standing some distance away, because there might be something else moving as well. So Brachiosaurus, the dinosaurs, the elephants, the hippos, they were all there on day six, because they're all land animals. But we have elephants and hippos. But we evidently don't have dinosaurs. So what happened to the dinosaurs? We go back to the Bible. And the Bible tells us that God created man in a perfect world where there was no sin. 
No death, no disease. That came into the world because of man's rebellion. Evolution says as long as there's been life, there's been death. It's always been here for millions of years. But Genesis is very clear. In Genesis 3, the Lord said to the serpent who deceived Eve, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and, will, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So there was a physical curse on the animals. And as um, Steve mentioned, Romans 8 says that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth to, together today. So at the fall, we don't know if it happened instantly or gradually, and we don't know exactly how it happened, but God changed probably by flipping switches in the genetic code, changed the behavior of some creatures, and some of them became carnivores. And as a result of that fall, some of those creatures started to have disease, just as humans would have disease. And the world became increasingly evil, so evil that Scripture says, God says, the thoughts and intentions of the human heart were only evil continually. And so God said, I'm going to destroy the world with a flood. And Noah, I want you to take two of every kind of land animal and bird onto the ark. And so he would have taken two of every kind of dinosaur. And as soon as we say that, people scoff, uh, secularists scoff, but sadly some Christians scoff, and they say, well, there's no way you could fit all the animals in that ark or the dinosaurs. Well, of course, you couldn't fit that dinosaur in that ark, but that wasn't the ark. Um, the dimensions are given in Genesis, and uh, here's a, a scale model showing a human being and a dinosaur next to the ark. But still, you couldn't fit all those, all those dinosaurs into the ark. Well, we need to know some facts about dinosaurs. Uh, first fact is that uh, some dinosaurs were quite small. In fact, no bigger than a chicken at full maturity. Another thing we need to know is that uh, dinosaurs, are, they're reptiles, and like all reptiles, they, they continued growing all their lives, and uh, they start out small. So here's a little itty-bitty friendly little alligator that just kind of tickles your finger, and he grows up into a big one that can swallow you whole. <laughs> the largest dinosaur eggs that we've ever found are only a little bit bigger than an American football. So the great T-Rex, the Brachiosaurus, uh, the the uh, stegosaurs, they were all small once. And in fact, with the really big dinosaurs, the long-necked sauropods, uh, scientists have studied their growth patterns, and uh, they found that they grew very little the first few years of their life. Uh, most of their, they studied it through the uh, studying the bones, the growth patterns in the bones. Most of their growth was in a very short period of time, and then the rest of their life, they grew very little. So if Noah took the animals onto the uh, dinosaurs onto the ark when they were small, they wouldn't grow very much. They were young. Most of their growth would be after the flood. And you'd say, well, now, wait a minute. You're trying to make it easy for Noah. No, think about it. Why did God tell Noah to take animals on the ark? To preserve them to repopulate the earth after the flood. God would not bring, and notice the text says God brought the animals to Noah. He didn't have to go out and collect them. God would not bring the big T-Rex, the big Apatosaurus, because that would be grandma and grandpa. They wouldn't have reproductive potential after the flood. He'd bring junior T-Rex, junior Apatosaurus, and they would be a lot smaller. There's another fact we need to know. Evolutionists have multiplied the number of uh, genre and species of dinosaurs. Almost every new discovery gets a new species name, often associated either with the location or with the scientist who found them. But uh, recently, there's been research by two evolutionary scientists, experts on dinosaurs. They published an article a few years ago saying that uh, evolutionists have probably overestimated the number of dinosaur species by 30 or 35% either by giving different names to what in reality is the same uh, creature, because the scientists who found the fossils over in China gave them one name, and they rarely find the whole skeleton. They just find a few bones. So they gave one name to that fossil, and then an American finds uh, maybe a different bone, gives it a different name, and then they find more bones, and they find out, oh, that's the same creature. But they've already got two different scientific names. 
Here's one example. The top one has one genus and species name. The bottom one has a different genus and species name. And yet, that's the same creature. I mean, some of you have bigger skulls than some others. That doesn't mean you're a different species or genus. There's less difference between those two dinosaur skulls than there are between those three dog skulls. And those dogs are all the same species. So Noah didn't have to take uh, two of these and 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 two of these on the ark. He just took two of the ceratops. And in the genetic code of those ceratops was all the information to produce variety or some of that variety may be the result of mutations. Oh, here's another reason why they've multiplied the number of species of dinosaurs. And I saw this in the Museum of the Rockies. Dinosaurs are just like lots of other creatures. As the creature grows, their morphology, their physical appearance changes. So, you know, every baby, when it is born, every baby is cute, right? And then as they grow... Some of us become beautiful and gorgeous, and some of, them are just, some of us are just average. And did you know that your nose and your ears uh, never stop growing? So you can look in the mirror today, and then you can just project ahead 20 years and imagine how big those things are going to be. <laughs> okay? uh, we had, uh, our dog had puppies a few, years ago, uh, a few uh, months ago, and uh, she's a black lab, and of course... The, uh, the lab, when the babies came out, they just had a really short, smashed snout. And within eight weeks before we sold them to uh, loving families, their snouts had gotten longer, and they still weren't at the length that they're going to be when they're one year old. Dinosaurs are like that. So a lot of species names have been given to the same creature at different stages of development. Noah didn't take any of those dogs on the ark. I know because those dogs are all the result of artificial breeding over the last three to four hundred years. He just took two of the dog kind. And in the genetic code for those dogs on the ark was all the information to produce all that variety. So we think there were probably only about 50 dinosaurs on the ark. Any not in the ark perished. Any that could run to higher ground would, but eventually there wouldn't be any higher ground. They'd be swept away by the floodwaters. And as Steve said, we would expect to find from that flood billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. And we find dinosaurs on every continent. And this creature is almost completely uh, preserved and almost completely articulated, which means that the bones are in the right relationship to each other. This guy did not die of old age uh, and fall over along one of his favorite paths and slowly buried uh, an eighth of an inch a year. He was probably buried alive to produce that. As otherwise, scavengers and microdecay organisms would destroy all the evidence. Sometimes we find fossilized skin, which again speaks of rapid burial and fossilization. You know, I don't know if you do this down in Texas, but um, up in Indiana, we have deer hunting all year long. There's a couple weeks where you can hunt with your bow or your gun. The rest of the year, people hunt with their cars. Did you do that down here? <laughs> And it's, it's really a bizarre thing. I, I don't understand it. When they, when they kill it with their bow or their gun, they take it home and get it processed. But when they kill it with their car, they just leave it on the side of the road. Can't figure that out. Of course, when they do, you know, we've got lots of fossilized deer all along the highways in Indiana and Kentucky. No. If the highway department doesn't come to pick them up, nature will take care of the evidence. You've got to bury a creature rapidly to make it a fossil. And uh, scientists believe that this dinosaur is showing evidence of having bur been buried alive in the throes of uh, suffocation. Yeah, but if dinosaurs and humans lived on the earth at the same time, why don't we find dinosaurs and humans buried together in the fossil record? We're told there are no human fossils in the rock layers where the dinosaurs are. And we're told that there are no living dinosaurs on the earth. So obviously... Man never lived with dinosaurs. There are 65 million years of sediments between the dinosaurs and modern man. That's proof positive that we never lived together. No, it's not. The coelacanth fish was only known from the fossil record. 
it was, we were told by the scientists that it went extinct with the dinosaurs 65 million years ago because above what they label as 65 million years, there are no coelacanth fossils. So it went extinct. They said that until 1938 when they found the coelacanth swimming off the coast of Madagascar in 400 feet of water. And the coelacanth, modern coelacanth is virtually identical to the uh, fossil. But you know what? We don't find any humans fossilized with coelacanths. Why? Because coelacanths live at 400 feet below sea level, and humans don't. So I wouldn't expect to find them together, and I wouldn't expect to find a human being running next to a T-Rex to escape the floodwaters. Humans are going to go to higher ground. They're going to hang on to logs. I wouldn't expect to find them buried together. And the evolutionists are wrong about the fossil record, too. We've got lots of evidence about that. Uh, I'll be sharing some of that tomorrow with the kids in the morning. But uh, recently, they've said, oops, we were wrong. They didn't go extinct 65 million years ago. They didn't go extinct at all. And we've found the fossils now in rock layers that we date to be 17 million years old. They could be all the way through there. We just haven't found them. Well, when did they become extinct if they did? There's lots of evidence that it wasn't very long ago. Uh, Mary Schweitzer was a graduate student at the University, uh, Montana State University in the 1990s. And uh, she and her lab assistant were looking at a slice of T-Rex bone under the microscope. And her lab assistant said, Mary, you've got to come over and look at this. You won't believe this. I'm seeing red blood cells in this T-Rex bone. And Mary went over and looked at it, and she said, it was exactly like looking at a slice of modern bone, but of course I couldn't believe it. I said to the lab technician, the bones, after all, are 65 million years old. How could blood cells survive that long? She was mystified because blood cells break down very rapidly. That's why we uh, prepare people for burial. We put something else in their veins instead of blood. Why couldn't she believe it? Well, she tells us uh, the bones are 65 million years old. It's because she was committed to the millions of years, she couldn't believe what she's seeing. She never questioned the millions of years. Well, she published her, her uh, research about this, and immediately the scientific community uh, evolutionists attacked it and said, oh, it was probably some uh, biofilm produced by bacteria or uh, something else. But she kept, uh, she kept to her guns on this. She got her Ph.D. She went to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, to teach. And in 1993, uh, there were, the evolutionists were transporting some more fossil bones from the field to the museum. They had to break the bone to get it into the helicopter. And they called Mary Schweitzer in to examine the bones. And, uh, and in, in uh, 2005, this was... Uh, she, she dissolved away the minerals and found fish, tissue fragments flexible and resilient when stretched returns to its original shape. Bone, regions of bone show fibrous character not normally seen in fossil bone. Another report about this research said dissolved T-Rex bone yielded flexible branching vessels, some of which contained cell-like structures. And Mary Schweitzer has become quite an expert on this now. There have been more bones that have been found. She's written more technical articles and uh, marshaled more scientific evidence. But she realizes this is a problem, and so she's done some more experiments. And uh, she did two years of experiments with um, testing whether iron could be the preservative. And uh, she's published a paper now arguing that uh, that may be the explanation for how these bones could still have soft tissue. But no evolutionist would allow a creationist to extrapolate from two years of observation to 65 million years. That's, that's just a ridiculous extrapolation. The more easy explanation is these creatures weren't buried 65 million years ago. They weren't buried and fossilized slowly. They were buried in Noah's flood rapidly. Another more evidence that dinosaurs uh, didn't go extinct very long ago is that almost every culture of the world has dragon legends. The Chinese are the most famous, but they're not the only ones. The flag of Wales has a dragon on it. And in the southwest United States, there are petroglyphs. These are etchings in stone wall, on stone walls uh, done uh, 
we, we believe, by Native American Indians. And uh, one researcher said, there is a petroglyph in Natural Bridges National Monument that bears striking resemblance to a dinosaur, specifically a brontosaurus with a long neck, uh, a long tail and neck and small head and all. And uh, here's, the, uh, here's the carving. Here's bringing out the relief. Now we have to ask a question. How could Native American Indians a couple thousand years ago sculpt uh, that picture if they'd never seen the creature? We don't have any creatures that look like that. But it's amazingly accurate of a sauropod. In a temple in Cambodia built in the 12th century after Christ, very famous temple in the jungles of Cambodia, uh, there's a stone archway to one of the entrances, has a number of different animals carved in it, including a stegosaurus. How did the Cambodian artist sculpt that if he'd never seen the creature? I mean, the first dinosaur bones, as far as we know, were not found until the early parts of the 19th century. And when they found them, they just found a couple of bones. They didn't find the whole creature. And then there's the uh, tomb of Bishop Bell in England. Died in 19, uh, 1496. And uh, in the brass band around the lid of the tomb on the floor of the church, uh, there's carved a number of different creatures, including a bat, dogs, fish, a bird, an eel, a wild pig, and a fox, and what looked like two long-necked dinosaurs. Again, how could, the, how could the artists draw those if they'd never seen them? And then we have uh, what, what are called living fossils. They're creatures that the evolutionists for years said uh, went extinct, and then they find the creatures alive. Uh, the Wallamy, Wallamy pine... Uh, was thought to have gone extinct 150 million years ago. That's what the evolutionists claimed until 1994 when they found it alive in a secluded valley west of Sydney, Australia and only less than 100 miles from where they found the fossils. And in a, in a display of a replica, because the scientists are keeping it a secret where this is, they don't want people going and destroying this ancient tree, uh, they had this little sign uh, the discovery of Wallamai Pine is the equivalent of finding a small dinosaur still alive on the earth. Well, why couldn't it be equivalent to finding a really large dinosaur still alive on the earth? In fact, we have very dense jungles in Central Africa, in uh, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, where people don't live, but there have been from time to time uh, testimonies from people who live there who say they've seen creatures that when they describe them to a Westerner, they sound like they've seen a dinosaur. But at this point, it's just anecdotal, and you can't use, uh, they, it wouldn't do any good to take a photo because you can fake anything on the computer. So if there is one alive, we'd have to uh, capture it. If it's too big, you know, cut off one of its legs or something, send it to the most rapidly evolutionist university and say, please identify this. And if it was a dinosaur, the evolutionists would have to rapidly uh, modify their theory, but creationists would say, no surprise. So, as, uh, as Steve said, we live in a culture that says the Bible can't be trusted in this scientific age. Why do people say that? Well, they say that because of uh, cell phones and computers and refrigerators and space shuttles. No, no, that's not why people say you can't trust the Bible. It's because of the teaching of evolution in millions of years. And so, they, they see this as shooting massive holes in the Bible and as Steve has said, most of the church says, well, just trust in Jesus. Kids, don't worry about the dinosaurs. That's not important. Just believe in Jesus. But the dinosaurs are a major weapon for convincing children and adults that the Bible is not true. And so that's why we, uh, we have a lot of resources. We've had, uh, in fact, the present cover of Answers Magazine is all about dinosaurs and uh, we've got a number of DVDs there. This is a, a great one for kids. Um, it's very interactive. And uh, we call it a kid's video, but actually from the testimonies we've had, we've realized it's really an adult video in, dis in disguise because um, mothers have come to us and said, I learned more sitting in the back of the living room than my kids did. So it's a great, uh, great video. In our Answers books in Volume 1, there's a chapter on dinosaurs. In the Answers uh, DVDs, the first one has uh, an answer on dinosaurs. In the, kids, in the teens' Answers books, there's an article 
or a chapter on dinosaurs. And then we have a book on dinosaurs for kids of all ages, beautiful uh, graphics, and a, a book on dragon legends and how that relates to dinosaurs. And then D is for dinosaur for the really little kids. And uh, for middle school or, or uh, grade school kids, the second book in the uh, Answers for Kids series is on dinosaurs and the flood. And we have a lot more information on dinosaurs on our website, answersingenesis.org, where we analyze recent claims of evolutionists. And we have a lot in our museum on the dinosaurs. We have about 65 life-size dinosaurs and uh, we have dinosaur fossils. In fact, our latest addition at the museum is Ebenezer the Allosaur. The fossil was found in uh, western Colorado on a property owned by Christians. And uh, it is one of the most remarkable Allosaur fossils in the world. We have 97% of the skull. And we have 56% uh, of the skeleton. And we're going to be using uh, CT scans and other methods to uh, do research on this. But an amazing uh, discovery. The actual skull is right here. It's too heavy to hold here, so we made a replica uh, to, to hold it. So we like to call dinosaurs our missionary lizards because they help us to explain the gospel. Because the reason that we know about dinosaurs is the fossils, and fossils are dead things. Why is there death? Because of sin. What has God done about sin? He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for sin. And one day he's coming to redeem the creation as well. So we can use the, the Bible to explain dinosaurs. There was no death before the fall. They existed thousands of years ago, not millions. They were created on the sixth day. All were originally vegetarian, and most of their fossils are from Noah's flood. And so we need to be building our thinking in every area, including about dinosaurs, on the Word of God because we're being brainwashed with a lie, a lie that spread all over the world, a lie that is greater than the lie of the, of the myths of the ancient pagan Greeks and Romans at the time of the Apostle Paul, deceiving people into thinking that this book is not true. It's not the Word of God. It's written by pre-scientific, primitive, superstitious Jews and Christians. And we're going to be talking about more brainwashing um, Tonight and tomorrow, tonight I'm going to talk, after Steve talks about the image of God, which is a, a powerful message, I'm going to talk about ape men, Adam, and the gospel, and I've got lots of pictures. I don't suppose any of you um, believe that we evolved from apes, but 50% of Americans do, and I, I encourage you to come back and learn why they do and why it's all a deception. And then tomorrow night we're going to talk about millions of years, where did the idea come from, which is based on my PhD research. And it didn't come from the rocks and the fossils. So come back and, and learn about that. And then we'll follow that up with Noah's flood washing away millions of years. And those would be good talks to invite non-Christian friends to come to. Because they'll hear things, any of those, they'll hear things that they haven't heard and never will hear in the public schools or the universities. So I hope that helps you to see that uh, if you have been brainwashed, you don't need to be anymore and uh, give you some answers to help your friends and your children. God bless you.